Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. Thanks for coming out and worshiping with us today. Whether you're here in person or joining us on our live stream, we want to, uh, to make you welcome and invite you now to take out your Bibles uh, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, my name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. And this morning we're going to be continuing our study through Matthew's Gospel, which is a telling of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're in chapter 21 this morning uh, and going to be looking at verses 23 through 46. So join me in Matthew 21 if you would. Uh, here at Trinity, we love the Bible. We believe it's God's word. It's God's revelation. It's how he shows himself to us. It's how he reveals to us who he is. It's how he shows us who we truly are. Uh, and it shows us how we should respond and relate to him. Uh, and so we're going to dive in and study it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, like we do week to week. We want to understand what this text says to it in its original context, to its original audience, and then apply those truths to our lives today. We don't want to read in our opinions, our contemporary ideas over the text. We want the text to speak to us. We want God to speak to us. And that's the aim this morning. So as you turn to Matthew 21, I want us to, to think about something this morning. In life, every so often, even the most patient people often arrive at different situations that make us say, all right, enough is enough. There are times when your patience runs out, when something goes unchanged for so long that you finally say, enough is enough, it's time to deal with this. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's in the workplace where there's that employee who slacks off time after time, does subpar work, has a bad attitude, doesn't seem to care, and eventually over time, it ends up costing them their job. Maybe it's at home where your kids fail to listen to you time after time after time, and eventually there end up being consequences for that disobedience. Maybe it's at the ballot box where a mayor or senator or president's actions and failures have you ready to just vote the bum out and give somebody else a shot. Maybe it's in sports where you're a fan of the Cleveland Browns and where the team is terrible for so long that eventually you just quit caring and lose. You know, maybe it's not like cheering for the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> cheering for the Browns aside, there is usually a point in time where we say this has gone on for long enough. And it's time for a drastic change. Well, what if I told you that God can actually come to that point with us? Right? We speak, we sang of God's great faithfulness. We talk of his grace, of his mercy, of his never-ending love. And all of those things are very much true. But there's another side to the coin as well. That the same God of love is also a God of justice and of righteousness. And eventually, when we reject him, when we continue to reject him, there comes a point where he says, enough is enough. And for the good of my people, change is coming. We're going to be looking at a text this morning that talks about that reality. In our scripture reading from Zechariah this morning, Todd read about a promise of that coming, of, of God saying, my shepherds, I'm, I, my prophets, I'm, I'm judging, I'm driving away, I'm making things new. This morning we're arriving we're at a point where Jesus tells those religious leaders of his day, that time is now. And it shows us a very clear picture of why we got there. And in this moment, there is a warning for us. 
there's a warning to examine ourselves and look for the same things in our hearts that happened in the, the hearts of these religious leaders, these people who were blind to Jesus' coming, to, to ask ourselves, am I making the same mistakes? Am I falling into the same trap? So that we can repent, so that we can change, so that we can move forward, so that we can avoid coming to a place in our lives, in our church, in our families, in our walks with the Lord, where God has to say enough is enough. So let's look at the text this morning, Matthew 21. I'll begin reading in verse 23 and we'll go through verse 46. It says, And when he, being Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? Man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, this, they heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds, because they held him to be a prophet. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray, and we'll study it together. 
Our God and Father, we pray that we would pause at these words this morning, that you'd quiet our hearts, that you'd remove distractions, that you'd help us to look in the mirror as we look at this text. And as we see things that we don't like, see things that we like, whatever we see, Father, help us to look to Christ. As we study your word, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us. By the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we got a lot of stuff to cover here, a lot of, of texts, a couple different parables that are all interrelated, all intertwined. That's why we package these ones together in a single sermon, even though it's maybe a little bit bigger chunk of text than we've been taking lately. All of these stories are meant to drive home a point, to drive home a point to the Pharisees, and by extension, to drive home a point to us. Now, let's remember how we got here. Remember, all throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been teaching and acting like someone with an authority greater than that of just an everyday human being, right? We've seen this in his miracles. We've seen this in the teaching and in the crowd's reaction to his teaching. They're saying, this guy doesn't teach like the scribes, like the religious leaders, like the people that we're used to hearing who are just kind of parroting what somebody else has said. Jesus teaches like somebody with real authority. And that continues, and it continued in his actions in the temple last week that we saw in uh, in the sermon that was preached as Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. Todd looked uh, looked at this text and we talked about the fact that, you know, you've heard the story of the money changers and Jesus flipping over the temple, and that probably happened at a couple different times during his ministry. But as Jesus has entered the temple, one thing is very clear, he's caused a commotion again. He's gotten people stirred up, and he's gotten the religious leaders stirred up to the point where they come to him, here in verse 23, and they say, who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things? Who put you in charge of the temple, Jesus? Now, we've seen these kind of questions get asked of Jesus before. It's important to remember that Like most of the questions that are asked to Jesus by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders, this isn't a genuine inquiry. They're not really curious where he thinks he got this authority. This is another trap. This is them trying to get him to say something that they can use against him in the court of public opinion. By what authority does Jesus do these things? Where does he get this authority? Well, he does it by divine authority. We've seen that reinforced time and time again in Matthew's gospel, that Christ, that Jesus is not simply a human being. He's not just a man. He's God in the flesh. And he carries with him the power of God, the authority of God, the wisdom of God. That's the authority on which he is acting. And perhaps the Pharisees are thinking, if he says this, if he holds himself up like he has other times as divine, as Messiah, as more than just a man, then we can, we can accuse him of blasphemy. So they're trying to bait him again. They're trying to trap him again. They're trying to ask a question in such a way that they are setting him up. And Jesus says this time, well, two can play at that game, fellas. Look at how he responds, verse 24. I also will ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. All right. You answer my question, I'll answer yours. What's Jesus' question? What's he asked them? He says, where did the baptism of John come from? From heaven or from man? So he holds up John the Baptist. 
Remember, John the Baptist was Jesus' forerunner. He was the prophet sent to prepare the way. He preached a message of repentance, of turning to God, of the coming of the kingdom of God. He preached the same message that Jesus then came to preach. And so Jesus is asking them, where did John get his authority? Where does John mess- John's message come from? Did it come from heaven? Was, it, was John sent by God with divine authority and divine backing? Or did John just make it up? Did John invent his own, his own teachings, his own baptism, his own mission? Where did John's authority come from? Now, that should be a simple enough question to believe. Whether you believe in John's message or not, it's a yes or no, right? Did John's message come from heaven or did it come from man? But the Pharisees are loath to answer this question. Why? Because what we're going to see here is that what drives the Pharisees in their response here, what drives them in their leadership of the people is not what they actually believe to be true, but what will make them look good in the public eye. We see here in this first encounter a misplaced faith. These Pharisees have a misplaced faith. They look like devout people who trust in God, who follow after him, who keep his rules and commandments. But what this starts to betray here is they're actually trusting themselves, their own goodness, their own standing, their own reputation among the people because they start to have a little dialogue. I I, I love the image here of Jesus asking them this question and then they're like, okay, time out, huddle up. All right, what should we say? Because if we say this, so they have this discussion, this dialogue where they note, all right, if we say from heaven, if we affirm John's message, then he's going to turn around and say, then why didn't you believe him? Then why didn't you follow him? Why did you hold him out as, as an outcast, as a crazy man? Why are you rejecting me who comes with the same message? So we can't say that John's message came from heaven or he's got us. But if we say it was from man, the crowd really likes John. And they're a big crowd here, and we would lose face in front of the people. So they don't want to answer that it's from heaven and lose faith as people who were not faithful to God's message. But they also don't want to say what they really think of John, that he was just a crazy person, and lose face in front of the people who respect John, who believe John's message. They're whole way of reasoning this out. Everything is built on the foundation of what will keep us from losing faith in front of the people. That's really the only thing they care about. They don't care about God. They don't care about his word. They don't care about his commands. They don't care about his mission. They care about their reputation. They care about what people think of them. And so, in order to preserve that reputation, they do what any good politician knows how to do. They ignore the question. And they don't answer it, right? Uh, we, we don't know. We don't know where John's message came from. And so Jesus says, then I guess I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from either. In their stubbornness, we see the first reason that God is about to be sweeping them aside. They don't have faith in him. They don't trust in God. They don't put their stock, their hope, their rest, their peace, their future on his shoulders. They're shouldering everything themselves. And they're going through this exhausting time and time again process of having to arrange everything to hold themselves up in the eyes of all the people. 
Their faith isn't in God. It's in their own reputation, their own goodness. And having exposed their lack of faith, Jesus now tells a parable to expose their lack of obedience. Right? That they have a false obedience. They don't really listen to what God has to say. Now, this is a concept that would have seemed ridiculous to Jesus' original audience, right? Because the Pharisees, we're so used to using that term Pharisees as like, that's the bad guys in the story, right? But the Pharisees to the people of that day were the most devout, righteous, religious people in the entire culture. They were the most fastidiously observant of every rule, of every regulation. And the people who were outside, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people who knew they weren't in God's favor, even still, they would have had a respect for the Pharisees. They would have said, well, that's, that's what I should be like. That's what it would look like if I was really the person that God wanted me to be. But Jesus tells a story here to show things aren't always what they appear. Seeming success, seeming righteousness is not actually righteousness. And so he tells the story of two sons. We've got a dad, we got two sons, and we got a vineyard. And the father tells the two sons, I want both of you to go and work in the vineyard for the day. Time to get to work. So he tells the first son, hey, can you go work in the vineyard for me? And the first son says, nope, I'm not going. Maybe he's got other things to do. Maybe he's got a party to attend. Who knows? But he says, nope, I'm not going to go. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. So he tells the father, nope, not listening to you. But then in the end, he actually ended up doing what his father asked him to do. Son number two is the opposite, right? The second son, father gives the same request. And he answered, I go, sir. Yes, sir. I'll get right on that. Take care of it. But then he never actually goes. He never actually does the thing that his father asked him to do and that he said he was going to do. And so Jesus holds up this example, holds up these two sons. And it's important to remember, he's still speaking to the Pharisees. So they're still, the crowds gathered around, the Pharisees, the religious leaders have interrupted him. And Jesus is addressing them here and he says, which son did the will of his father? All of us could answer that question. I would think like they would here this morning to say, well, the first son is the one that actually did the will of his father. He's the one that actually ended up going and doing what his father asked him to do. Even though he, he said he wouldn't, even though he rejected his father at first, he ultimately was the one who was obedient. And then Jesus delivers the gut punch. He essentially says to the Pharisees, you guys are the second son. You guys are the second son. You're the ones who say, we'll get right on that, but you never actually do it. Your obedience is false. It's surface. It's show. You don't actually care about doing what God has called you to do. And then Jesus gives one of, you know, Jesus gives a lot of shocking statements. I feel like every time we're up here as we're talking through, we're, we're trying to get this point across that the things Jesus said turn the world upside down. This statement here was, would have been earth-shattering to the people. Truly I say to you, in verse 31, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Identifies two groups of people, tax collectors and prostitutes. What he's basically calling to mind are the worst sinners anybody could think of at that time. 
The people who were just the scum of the culture, right? Completely outside God's good grace. Jesus says, they are going to enter the kingdom of God before you guys, before you religious leaders, before you who everybody would say are the most righteous and holy and devout people around. They're going to get in before you do. Why? Because John came with his message in the way of righteousness, preaching repentance, preaching faith, preaching looking to this Messiah who is to come, and you rejected him. You did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. What, what did they do? They repented, right? They had been going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. But when confronted with this message of repentance, they repented. They changed direction. They quit going that way, and they went this way instead. It's interesting enough, in the parable, back in verse 29, the first son who says, I will not go, it says, but afterward he changed his mind and went. The word in Greek that we translate there as changed his mind is the word for repentance. It's the same word. Repentance literally means to change one's mind. We a lot of times think of repentance as like a feeling, like you feel really sorry for what you did. And that's a component of repentance, right? Like there is sorrow that comes with, with, with sin. But repentance is more than that. Repentance is a change, a changing of one's mind. And Jesus says, these people who you look at as scum and outcasts, they repented when confronted with God's truth. They changed. You didn't. You doubled down on your own goodness, on your own righteousness. And here... Jesus holds up their obedience as false and holds up what true obedience looks like. And true obedience cannot be understood without repentance. Repentance is central to the Christian life. The willingness to put aside sin, to change our mind, to change our heart, and go in a new direction is everything when we're following Christ. Martin Luther, the the father of the Protestant Reformation in his 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany to start the Protestant Reformation. These ideas that were the the pistol that, that fired the shot that upended everything in medieval Europe. His first of the 95 theses was our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You're a Christian this morning. Your entire life should be characterized by repentance. Sometimes we can think, well, you repent of your sins to get saved, right? To start following God, and then you're moving forward from there. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It is a constant way in which we grow. There's no way to move forward without realizing our own sinfulness and changing and turning from it by God's help. Pastor and author Tim Keller put it this way. He said, on the surface, talking about Luther's statement of all of life being repentance, he says, on the surface, this looks a little bleak. Luther seems to be saying Christians will never be making much progress, right? We think of repentance as the starting line, and Luther's saying you're going to be at the starting line forever. Listen to how Keller goes on. He says, but of course, that's not Luther's point at all. He was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign 
that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. Hear that sentence again. Listen carefully to this. Pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. What does that mean? That means you want to know if you're growing in your faith? Are you repenting regularly? Are you changing? That's how we grow. When we assume we have nothing to repent of, when we assume that our tracker for our progress in the Christian life is how holy we can be, we fall into the trap that the Pharisees did, where their obedience, where their faith ends up being in themselves and not in God, not in his son whom he has sent. The Bible is very clear that all of us are sinners, that all of us fall short of God's glory, right? Psalm 14, 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Now, does that mean that none of us do good things ever? No, of course not, right? We know that's not true by looking around us, by seeing the good things that people do all the time because we're made in the image of God. We're made to be like him. But what that psalm means is that there's no one who does good perfectly. God is the only one who meets the true standard of goodness. All the rest of us do good things, but those good things are tainted by the selfish, sinful desires, the rebellion against God and how he said to do things. Even our good things are often marred by bad motives, right? I know that's true of me. Look inside. I'm sure it's true of you as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 sums it up as, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Truly there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Nobody's perfect. Only God is truly good. Only God is truly perfect. And if that's true, then a pious righteousness that looks down on others and doesn't really acknowledge and doesn't readily acknowledge its own sinfulness isn't actually obedience at all. What does it look like to obey and follow God? Well, part of that is acknowledging that you are who he says you are. When God shines the flashlight on our hearts and exposes us as sinful people who do what we shouldn't do, the first step of obedience is saying, yeah, that's true. And that's not a one-time thing. That's going to happen to you on the regular as God grows you and moves and changes you, makes you look more like Jesus tomorrow than you did yesterday. Repentance is an acknowledgement that we are who God says we are. And it's a trust that we can be who Jesus says we can be. Hear that again. Repentance is an acknowledgement that we are who God says we are. And it's a trust that we can be who Jesus says he can make us into. If we believe God and we believe his diagnosis of our problem and we believe and trust that Jesus can deal with it, then we will be repentant people. We will be people who are constantly repenting. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the chief priests didn't see that. Their faith was in themselves. And their obedience 
wasn't actually obedience at all. It was a profession. It sounded good. It looked good. They were respectable, right? The, the, the one son, can you believe his insolence telling his father, I ain't going? Well, the second son, I go, sir, right? He's, he's proper. He's respectful. But he never actually does it. That's what the Pharisees were like. They were proper. They were respectful. They said the right things. But they were empty on the inside. Their obedience wasn't there. And so in response to that reality, to their lack of faith in God, trusting themselves, to their lack of actual obedience, just putting on a show, in response to that reality and the suffering it inflicted on the people, Jesus tells the religious leadership that their time is up. It's important to note, the Pharisees' sin doesn't just hurt themselves. The nation, the people, the tax collectors and prostitutes, the outcasts are suffering because the ones who are supposed to be feeding them God's word, God's truth, God's hope, they're feeding themselves. They're ignoring them. They're crushing them. That's why God said the things that he said in our scripture reading that Todd read for us this morning. That's why he talked about the shepherds in Isaiah not feeding the sheep and instead feeding only themselves. And when God's people suffer like that at the hands of poor shepherds, God cares. And eventually God says enough is enough and he comes to act. And Jesus tells the religious leaders that time has come. And he does it in another parable, verse 33. There's a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and went into another country. Situation that would have been common to the people of the day. They would have known exactly what's going on. This idea of a, of a landlord who he's got his farm, he's got his vineyard, and he leases it to people to work it, and he goes off and does business in another place. And eventually will come back and get the fruit of the vineyard, pay his tenants. This is how the economy worked very often in that day. And so we're told the owner of the vineyard goes off, and he starts sending servants to go collect when harvest is there. And what do the tenants do? Do they offer up the fruit of the vineyard that's been produced? No. They beat one of the servants. Stone one. Kill one. So the landlord sends more servants. More than the first time. And they do the exact same thing to them. Now what's Jesus picturing here with this parable? He's picturing the way that the people treated many of the prophets through the Old Testament, right? You look at the lives of prophets like Elijah. You go look at the, the lives of the various prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, throughout the Old Testament, the ones who God sent with his word for his people. They weren't pleasant. They were mistreated. They were beaten. They were driven out, exiled, killed. So what does the master do next? Finally, he sent his son to them and says, hey, this is, this is raising the game. They'll respect my son. And so the son goes to collect the fruit. But what do the tenants do? They say, this is our shot. If we kill him, then the place is ours, right? When the, when the son comes, they may assume the father has died. The son is now coming to, to take care of his property. If we knock him off, this place is ours. And so they took him. They threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Now, we haven't gotten there in Matthew's gospel yet, 
but those of us who are familiar with where this story is going, you can kind of see what Jesus is, is hinting at here, right? This is exactly how they're going to respond to him. I mean, they're scheming even now to have him arrested and killed. And so Jesus says in verse 40, when the owner of the vineyard comes, because he's not dead, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the religious leaders put on their best righteous indignation, right? He will put those wretches to a miserable death. They're going to get what's coming to them. And he will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. The irony here is thick, right? It's a reminder of, of David and Nathan the prophet, right? When David had his affair with Bathsheba, had her husband killed, Nathan goes and tells the parable of the sheep, and David gets the same reaction that the Pharisees do here, like, I can't believe someone would do that. And Nathan tells David famously, you are that man. That's what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees here. You are those tenants. You are the ones. And he asked them in verse 42, as he, had, as he does so many times, right? Have you never read the scriptures? These guys are the scholars, the preachers, the teachers of the day. They're the ones that know the Bible. Jesus tells them, have you read the Bible? Have you read, and he quotes here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus here quotes from Psalm, uh, from Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23, this, this messianic prophecy looking forward to the stone that was rejected by the builders that actually ends up being the cornerstone, right? Ancient architecture, the cornerstone was the main stone on which the whole structure was built and dependent. And Jesus says the stone that the builders of the house rejected, says it's worthless, actually is the very one that everything was built on. It's him. Jesus is rejected by the priests, by the leaders, by the teachers, by the Pharisees. And yet he's the cornerstone. He's sent by God. And so Jesus says that the one they've rejected is actually the cornerstone on which God's kingdom is built. The one that they're scheming to put to death. And that their time is now up. Right? Therefore I tell you, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Next time the owner of the vineyard sends someone back, he expects his vineyard to be producing what a vineyard is supposed to produce. If you build a vineyard in your backyard, if you plant grapevines in your backyard, what are you expecting to end up with a few months later? Grapes, right? It's the only reason it exists. The owner of the vineyard expects to get grapes when he sends his servants to collect. He expects his vineyard to produce fruit. If the vineyard represents, as Jesus is showing us here, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God exists to produce fruit. Righteousness, goodness, justice, mercy, love, and when God comes, he expects the people who are tending his vineyard to be producing these things that he's called them to produce. So Jesus says, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to a new people. Now, 
there is, there's a couple different ways to kind of take what he's saying here. You know, our first thought, I think, goes to Jews and Gentiles, right? You know, the, the, to this point, God's kingdom, his people, has been the nation of ethnic Israel, largely. And we know that Gentiles are going to be grafted in now as Jesus' message goes out to the far ends of the earth, like us. And that's certainly a truth here. But the focus of this right now is not so much on the Jew-Gentile dynamic, but on the fact of the vineyard is under new management. It's a, it's a speech, it's a condemnation primarily here, not of the Jewish nation, but of the leaders, of the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests. And so Jesus is saying, that group is no longer in charge of my vineyard, but this new people is. And it's the crowds that's following him around. It's the tax collectors. It's the prostitutes. It's the lepers. It's the outsiders. It's the blind guy that we met a few weeks ago who got his sight back and is now following Jesus. It's a, it's a people from every nation, tribe, tongue, being knit together into one people, God's kingdom, his covenant people. They are the ones now who are going to receive the kingdom. And that stone the builders rejected, Jesus says, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There's a song that we'll sing now and then around here, right? Rock of Ages, that Christ is our rock and our refuge. When you're looking for protection from a storm, a rock, a hole in a rock, a cave is a great place to hide, right? That strength is good and wonderful and beautiful. But that same rock and the very thing that makes that rock a good shelter from a storm also makes it a terrible thing to have that rock fall on you because it'll crush you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I've come to extend grace and mercy and goodness. But to those that reject me, it's not going to be a good ending. There's no neutrality, right? We can't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, let's let Jesus do his thing and go on his way. No. We either trust in Christ, we either take refuge in him, or we will ultimately find ourselves crushed by him. Every time the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were presented with an off-ramp from their sin and rebellion... They don't take it. They don't repent. They don't change their mind. Instead, they ignore it and they double down on their rebellion. And we've seen it here again today. Eventually, that attitude results in a changing of the guard. It results in God saying, enough is enough. New management here in my vineyard. So how do we respond to that this morning? What do we take from this text? Well, we need to look at the Pharisees and ask the question, can I see any of myself in their faith? Their faith, right? Can I see any of myself in there? Do you find your worth, value, and significance in God, in who he is, in who he made you to be? in how he calls you to live? Or do you find your worth, value, and significance in your own pride, reputation, and public standing? Whether that's in the world or even in the church, 
Where are you building your identity, your significance? Where are you placing your trust and your faith? Is it in God or is it in yourself? Is your obedience a true obedience or is it more like that of the Pharisees? Is it only skin deep, refusing to change when God confronts you with your sin? Right? I repented a long time ago. I don't have to worry about that anymore. I'm good to go. That's not the picture of repentance that's painted for us here this morning. Is your obedience a true obedience? Are you accepting who God says you are and what Christ said he came to do in your life? Christian, what kind of tenant are you? Right? If we're tending to God's vineyard, his kingdom, his people, what kind of tenant are you? Are you doing, how are you doing as a steward of God's vineyard? Are you using it for greedy, selfish gain, showing contempt for others? Or are you producing fruit for your master? If God shows up this morning and he says, hey, let me see this month's crop. Do you have anything to give him? Do you have anything to show? And if you're not a Christian this morning, how will you respond to Jesus? Will you see and trust him as the cornerstone on which all of reality is built? Will you respond to him like the tax collectors and the prostitutes who knew they weren't righteous, who knew they were on the outside looking in, but responded to the hope and the grace that was offered by Jesus? Or will you be like the Pharisees, reject him, and find yourself crushed by him? a lot in this text. There's a lot that should give us pause. This is one of those good moments, good weeks to take a time out and think about this. To not just assume that we're cruising right along because we're in church and religious. The Pharisees were in church and religious, right? What is, is my obedience true obedience? Is my faith true faith? And it's a time for us to marvel and rejoice at the goodness of our God that the owner of this vineyard doesn't put up with bad managers, doesn't let his people continue to suffer under bad leadership. He cares for those who people in power in our world don't care for. And he sent his son to redeem us, to save us, to change us from the guard, to take us from under this oppressive leadership that wasn't leadership at all, and to make us sons and daughters of God, sons and daughters of the king, co-heirs with him. What a good and, and kind and loving father who extends grace to the least likely, to those who on our own never had any hope of climbing up the pharisaical ladder. We serve a good and righteous God, full of grace, full of, of mercy, ready to forgive. We see that in the way that he responds to the tax collectors, in the way that he responds to the prostitutes, but be reminded that his patience will one day come to an end because he is a God of justice as well as love. Do not find yourself rejecting 
Christ on the outside when the day comes, whether in your life or whether for the world as a whole, where God finally says, enough is enough. Let's pray.